Welcome to Give and Take, where yours truly, Scott Jones, interviews artists, activists, authors, and a wide array of other thought leaders that help make our world the interesting place it is. My guest today is Rusty Reno. Rusty is the editor of First Things, a journal of religion and public life. And he's an old friend. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. I give you Rusty Reno. Rusty Reno, welcome to the podcast. How are you? I'm, I'm having a good day. How about you? I am doing great. Uh, America is is being made great again. We're switching the <laughs> FBI <laughs> directors. You know, it's uh, yet another uh, exciting, dramatic, melodramatic day in American public life. Uh, Rusty, you are the editor-in-chief right, of First Things, which is a journal about public life that is uh, – Traditionally conservative, C, small C in the best sense of the word. So what is it? Uh, I want to talk in a minute about your piece you just wrote called The Return of the Strong Gods. But can you just give me your state of the union sitting as you are in New York City as the editor of First Things and someone who cares about faith, values and public life? How are you feeling about the country right now? <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not. Uh, I think people are too upset. Uh, and I think it's because they fail to recognize that uh, a kind of social consensus that has been with us for a long time is um, has reached its use by date. And so the kinds of conflicts that we see in our society, ideological conflicts, they're not really ideological. They're almost spiritual, aren't they? Um, that, that these conflicts are, are to be expected. Uh, we had a long run, 70 years, I'd say, um, of a, of a kind of political consensus that's coming undone for lots of reasons. Some of them are have to do with uh, moral conflicts in our society. Some have to do with really profound economic changes that are driven by globalization. Um, some of them have to do with the spiritual changes in our country and the rise of the number of people who have no religious affiliation. Um, so I think part of what First Things exists is to provide kind of sober analysis and guidance in a time when people are very nervous. When you say sober, though, you're a Catholic. You got a lot of Catholics around, so the events aren't dry. <laughs> no, no. Uh, the founder of the magazine, Richard John Newhouse, would never allow that. <laughs> I have to remain true to his memory. And you know, you wrote this piece recently called "The Return of the Strong Gods," and in it, you talk about getting an essay from a guy in Australia, right? Somebody sent you an essay. Yes. And you basically say that this guy just wants the 20th century to be over. Yeah, it was a it was a great line. As soon as I read it, I said, I understand exactly what he's saying. And what he's driving at, young guy, grad student, uh, maybe just late 20s, who is aware that the political, social, cultural, and really almost spiritual options are uh, the kind of cultural self-presentation that we still have has been put in place for three generations, four generations. So we're still living a kind of 20th century, a 20th century set of fears and hopes. Hmm. Hmm. And I think they're out of sync with social reality. And that's one reason that the political context is so tumultuous. So, and you talk about how in some ways, right, that, that the, Strong gods were these nationalists, the gods of nationalism, the early 20th century. And, and, you know, you, you talk a little bit about Weber's idea of disenchantment, right? And how the, the fact value dichotomy kind of breaks apart in, in modernity. And, 
you kind of argue, right, that, that the way forward it seems has been attempted to kind of weaken everything. I forget the Italian philosopher you mentioned, but... Gianni Vattimo. Gianni Vattimo. You say that with such a lot. Uh, I mean, Italian's a beautiful language. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Are you talk, this, like, can you say more about that cultural, the, the, the means to peace by weakening? Yeah, I mean, uh, Weber, I mean, he flourished in the early centuries, late, late 19th, early 20th century. And he thought that the modern scientific revolution had forced educated thinking people to realize that they had to live in a world of kind of cold facts, not warm truths. So not warm meaning, but kind of cold scientific truth. And he thought that was a kind of burden that we are going to have to carry in the mm. modern era. What happened, though, is that after 1945 and these disasters of First World War, depression, fascism, Second World War, nuclear weapons, Holocaust, etc., I think a cultural consensus formed that what Weber called disenchantment was something that we ought to embrace as a positive program of social renewal. Hmm. And obviously it started by disenchanting the nation state and, you know, no more blood and soil, no more mysticism of, uh, of race and so on. And obviously in the United States, uh, the civil rights movement, our, our kind of crisis was, you know, treating race as a, if you will, strong God. And we had to, knock that idol off of its um, off of the altar uh, of our society. And so for all kinds of reasons, which I certainly would have supported when I, if I had been you know, uh, involved in, 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 in public life in the 1950s or 60s, it was, a, it was a, a fitting project to try to sort of take down the temperature, get people to let go of these kinds of deeply constraining and limiting and dangerous passions. Uh, but it took on a life of its own, and it got a lot of momentum, certainly in the 1960s and 70s, where we're going to disenchant cultural norms. Uh, and now we're to the point where we want to disenchant the difference between a man and a woman, uh, to the point of denying nature itself, if you will, has to be weakened. Um, and I think this is, as this is carried forward, um, it's dissolved more and more that is stable and steady and um, and sacred, for that matter. And it seems like a political environment, you have a kind of increasing conflict between this old imperative of disenchantment or weakening and something new. And then new is people inchoately saying, well, we want something sacred to rally around and be loyal to. And we got something huge. I mean, we got something so sacred, so fantastic. Fantastically, it's funny. Alec Ball was on Howard Stern. He said that Donald Trump. He looks at him as somebody that's. He feels bad because he's always looking for one more powerful word that he can't find. Our people are so fantastic. They're absolutely just great, fantastic people. <laughs> like the rhetoric. It's just like he's one powerful word away. Well, right. So I think you know Trump is easy to parody because in many ways he, he is a parody. Um, so it makes it easy for the comedians. All they have to do is imitate him. They don't even have to make him into a parody. But I think that for a thinking person, uh, a thinking person needs to say, well, what, what, how could such a, uh, kind of odd and really comic figure get elected president of the United States? He must, there must be something happening in our society that our political class must be failing to offer people what they want. And he, as a kind of animal genius and in an inarticulate way seems to be providing it. So fantastic. Our people are so 
you know, wonderful. You're going to be, you know, we're all going to be, um, we're just going to, we're just going to be, you know, so, you know, you're right. He's just always reaching for these words. And so what is it? So people want to believe that there's something grand, great, sacred, whatever, that they can rally around. Um, I think that's a sign of the times. People are, they don't want to live in a disenchanted world. They want the sacred to return to public life. And that's a dangerous thing because uh, you can make you can make the nation into an idol. You can make lots of things into idols. Um, but our political culture is so beholden to this second, you know, late 20th century imperative of disenchantment that uh, we're kind of a, in, a, in a dead end. We're trained to disenchant and the public increasingly wants something enchanting. That's right. I read an article a couple of years ago in the Hedgehog Review this woman who's a sociologist of emotions, but she talked about disenchantment and, and Mar uh, Weber and, and talked about uh, romance and internet dating and how basically people are so much more paralyzed because they feel like they have so much more data. And so they're much more jaded about it. And, and, and they kind of punish themselves because, well, how did I not know he was um, such a douchey guy or whatever? And I knew that, you know, and I had all these t questions to ask him like, you, you punish yourself because you got more data and you have this ironic detachment from the whole thing. And so like from, from the nation state to mash.com, we're just, it's, it's Weber all over the place. Well, ironic detachment, um, critique, um, a skeptical attitude. These are all part of strategies of disenchantment. They're part of a culture of disenchantment. And what, what I try to say, talk about in the essay, and it was really helpful for me to try to work this through because I had all these thoughts about all the, what I call the God terms of our time, diversity, openness, borderless world, uh, inclusivity, uh, all those words which have positive connotations. If you examine them, they're all words that are about dissolving strong distinctions. Uh, you know, and Trump's rhetoric, build a wall. It could be an absurd, it could be an absurd policy, but it's a very powerful rhetoric of reconsolidation, re-strengthening. So it's exactly the opposite of weakening. And I think of his candidacy, again, I mean, certainly one's right to, I think, to regret his, the crudity, the crudity of his rhetoric and wonder whether he's really capable of exercising, uh, uh, properly the office of the presidency. But there's something, there's a kind of genius in him to recognize, or maybe it's just being in the right place at the right time, recognizing that we have a public that wants something strong. My view is that there are two basic motifs or two basic intuitions, uh, spiritual, metaphysical, Heraclitus, all is flux, Parmenides, that which is and cannot not be, permanence and stability, Parmenides, openness and fluidity, Heraclitus. We've lived through a long season where we have been embracing Heraclitus, and I think we're transitioning to a period that um, is a recovery of Parmenides. And so the kinds of problems that we're going to face going forward uh, are, are going to be associated with uh, the problems of uh, how do we renew stability without and, per, and permanence and, if you will, borders and boundaries without going back to the bad things that we rightly tried to, uh, to um, escape from in the 20th century. Yeah, Colin Gunton in The One, The Three, and The Many in the beginning of that book says you could look at all of Western intellectual history is the struggle between um, Heraclitus and Parmenides. Right. Parmen uh, Heraclitus has had the upper hand for a long time now. I mean, postmodernism, Jacques Derrida, uh, and so on, 
I mean, certainly Derrida is a great theoretician. Of Her- he's a Heraclitian, right? Everything that seems solid and fixed is in fact unstable. And the right sort of intellectual project can sort of open these things up and then realize that there's always this excess of meaning that somehow spills over and bleeds out. And, you know, the egg yolk, it gets broken and it starts to, it starts to bleed into everything else. Um, and that's kind of how I see the Derrida project. And he thought of that as, um, as a spiritually beneficial because it opens things up, weakens, creates space for people to be individuals. You don't have to, you don't have to, you, know, you can move in a, in a fluid world. You can, you can move more freely. There's less that's going to kind of come and gobble you up. Uh, and I think there's something true to that, but I think what Derrida failed to recognize is that in a fluid world, people who don't know how to swim drown. Mm. And I think one of the things I'm concerned about in the United States is that we've created a much more fluid society, but it provides people with far less orientation on how to how to live decent lives. And for those of us who are well-educated and from good backgrounds, we kind of get a kind of coded message on how to navigate through life, and we, and we do an okay job of it. But people who are from less advantaged backgrounds uh, often, often, often sink. They can't swim. Yeah, I mean, that's, yeah, that's interesting that you say that. I think, um, I, I wonder, what, being... I mean, de- think about deregulation, economic deregulation. It creates far more scope for entrepreneurial initiative, and, and it, can, you know, it can often produce greater economic growth. But one effect is it tends to give more scope for the winners to win, and sadly, also more scope for the losers to yeah, lose. Yeah. And if you get cultural deregulation, which we also have undergone over the last 50 or 60 years, and has the same effect. It also creates, obviously, greater opportunity for people to forge their own identities. Uh, and maybe that's a good thing. I happen to think that there are moral, moral norms that ought to govern. But even if you're a moral relativist, you at least ought to recognize that the cultural deregulation, just as economic deregulation creates income inequality, cultural deregulation creates a kind of cultural inequality um, where people who can flourish in an unregulated environment degrade and other people really crash and burn. So we got drug, we got legalized marijuana, people who can use marijuana prudently. Okay, that's great. But we, you know, we have, uh, you know, a kind of crisis of drug of heroin overdose and a kind of deregulated moral environment only exacerbates that problem. Yeah. Cause there's studies, right? That for, I, I just read one where among white Americans, um, uh, whether or not they go to church, uh, is going to affect income, uh, health. radically health, health income and how they view the country positively yeah. or negatively. So you right. have a lot of these people who, the hillbilly elegy thing, right? You have a lot of people who kind of check Christian as a nationality because uh, I'm white and I'm not Jewish or Muslim. Right. But, but they don't have the social capital and existential kind of benefit, redemptive horizon that if they're really part of Christian communal life, it, 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 they might get. Uh, I think it's, you know, uh, institutions are dissolving. I use that's one of the metaphors I use a lot, dissolving, disenchantment, weakening, deconsolidation dissolving. Uh, institutions are dissolving in the bottom third of American society across the board. Uh, and if you're black and growing up in Baltimore, Maryland, the only functional institutions are the schools and the prisons. And those are the only two institutions that you'll encounter that, um, that really that have take up any kind of, have any kind of density. The police, the police prison system and 
the uh, the, uh, the public high school system, and maybe, but even the bureaucracy for providing social benefits is so remote and is not part of your neighborhood. Uh, that's not good, and that's increasingly true for for poor whites and and Hispanics as well. It is interesting too, right? That, that so we got to get in there as 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 a church hmm. and uh, and renew the possibility that there are functional Christian communities in and in an increasingly dysfunctional uh, underclass, which is growing sadly. So that's not that doesn't sound quite Benedict option. Uh, well, yeah, I don't know what it, what the Benedict option. I mean, I'm not sure. I, I mean, I, I'm in favor of the Christian option, not the Benedict option. <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting. Which uh, takes many forms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah. Know, some, in some contexts, the Christian option really does mean, you know, trying to create space uh, to, to, you know, space in an increasingly uh, secular society. But sometimes the Benedict option, you know, the Christian option means a certain kind of crusader mentality. You're willing to go and reclaim territory that has been lost, and I think that uh, uh, our generation is the first generation where you're talking you're, like a metaphorical, right? We're not talking like on horses with swords. Uh, no, I mean, but we take the wet at the sword of the Word of God. Absolutely, uh, I like that. Yeah, Even, as long as the leather's genuine, I'm not talking that bonded <laughs> crap. You, I'm with you on that completely. There's nothing better than a floppy Bible, exactly, like a catcher's <laughs> mitt, you know. <laughs> so. So I do think that, uh, um, you know, we're facing, you know, I say this Heraclitus, all this flux element, a lot of postmodernism, the relativism uh, that I think we all see. It's not, it's not, nobody is a complete moral relativist, but people really, they don't want to be judgmental. They want to give people space, open, inclusive, all these lang- all this, all this way of thinking. And uh, again, I'm, in my, in this Return of the Strong Gods, I try to explain why that way of thinking became so powerful. And I think we've just overshot the mark on this. And we need to restore for people solid places to stand. We need Parmenidean experiences. Marriage is a classic example. I think for most people, marriage is their most powerful experience of permanence. And, you know, uh, we all know that, you know, marriage marriages fail. Uh, but even though people know that, they still enter into marriage with the hope of permanence. And I think it's a powerful witness to the fact that human beings desire permanence in their lives. Not in everything, not to make everything like in, into um, this kind of frozen environment where there's no room to move, but that there'd be, there'd be significant and powerful experiences of permanence in people's lives, I think is, is really an imperative in the, going forward. Faith and family, those are the two most important experiences of permanence. Father in heaven, father at home. Yeah, and then you also talk about like civic life. You know, the, that's in the middle. That comes in between. Yeah, right, and, right, and faith. Yeah. Do you think is it too abstract? That's more, but the civic life is more complicated. Yeah, I see. I can really go up to someone and say, "You're, you know, get on board, go to church. You're not going to regret it." I can tell somebody, you know, uh, be be a faithful parent. You're not going to regret it. Uh, be a good citizen. It does, it's not as decisive, but that's, that's part of who we are as human beings. We also want to, we want to be from somewhere and we want to be loyal to a community of people. And so I think that that's a, that that's a powerful human need that, uh, that patriotism speaks to that human need. So we need a, we need a warm and responsible patriotism as well as 
renewal of marriage and family and renewal of faith. I was at this event last night in in Manhattan, um, and it was a, it was a. I'm this, not holding it against you. Exactly right. Exactly. <laughs> uh, uh, it was this the Alliance for Defense of Free Speech and Education or something. Oh right, yeah. yeah. And uh, Dave French was on the panel, and um, a couple. And I was Mark Oppenheimer's guest. I was. Uh, he was the uh, the token kind of lefty there, and um, he plays that role. Well. It's excellent. He plays it. He's he was incredible, and he was. You know, it's interesting though. Like, I wonder how much. Um, it seems like the concern or lack thereof on both the right and the left about free speech. I wonder if that's because we don't have much of a shared public square anymore, where people talk with people. So you kind of if people are siloed and tribe tribal, you know, tribed up uh, and, and among their own kind all the time, and sort of consistently reinforcing the echo chamber i wonder do you kind of lose the value of something like free speech because you you don't you don't inhabit shared space and exchanging reasons together as much yeah i think i mean it's important to distinguish between free speech and civic dialogue so civic conversation and it's the latter that you're you recognize i mean the, you could say look as a as a i mean free speech i think that uh, the free speech is a kind of uh natural law, so to speak, so natural right. In other words, we're rational animals and as rational animals we we think about reality and we and we make up our mind about what's true. And free speech wants to protect our ability to articulate what we believe to be true. Uh, but that's an that but that's a kind of abstract and it's an abstract way of thinking about it. But but that's different from this question about whether or not you and I can talk to each other about I mean talk, have a conversation, rather than me sort of you can say that, okay, hey, Reno, you're free to say whatever you want. And then you plug your Right, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, but that's not that, that deeper sense of having a civic culture where people can actually talk about what they believe to be true. And I wonder if. And that's very much in decline. Yeah, and if you lose that, I wonder if that's why people are. As you lose that and the value of that, I wonder if that's why people are so much uh, more apathetic about defensive expression sometimes uh, that's you know, a great point i think uh, i didn't thought about that but i think you're quite right about that they don't experience the benefit of they don't feel it instead they just all they see is kind of pointless conflict and a, a kind of verbal assault they don't see a fruitful exchange and so they say well all right so we shut the, down that speaker well at least we avoided an ugly conflict no yeah. yeah yeah and they don't say, yeah. Hey, wait a minute you know because we have to live with each other even when we lose so i have to so when mark oppenheimer's political party wins an election i have to accept their power their authority their 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 ability to rule and that means at a deep level i have to trust mark to share with me in a common love in a common ambition a common goal even though we disagree about means and all that kind of stuff and that's the basis of our civic friendship and that's something that's Increasingly elusive in our time. Yeah, yeah, and I think you know, Mark kind of made that point last night because they were talking about, um, they were talking about how, and Mark was acknowledging. He's like, I would love it if there were more conservatives teaching at Yale. I would love it if there were more conservative reporters. He's like, let me tell you what. One fact of the matter is, the culture I grew up in, the lefty liberal Massachusetts. You know, our parents were all happy if we became poor college professors. And I talk to undergrads now at Yale, and they're now, you know, they're, there's a lot of different pressures. And so some of this we talk about. Um, the disenchantment and the neoliberalism, the capitalism. I, I think, in some level, it, it on both the left and the right now, like it, it, just just how um, just like the best and brightest sort of at one point wanted to be ministers or priests, and now you know that's just 
a lot less common. I wonder, uh, as the neoliberal detachment or disenchantment sets in, are we going to find people that just don't care about the liberal arts and, and, and knowledge well, and everything just becomes already happening? Yeah, yeah. Because we have a decline in people majoring in in the humanities. No, we're we're. I mean, the the in this disen, this is another example where I think we've overshot the mark. That in this pattern of weakening and disenchantment. You know, all that's real anymore is utility, effectively money. And so a young person wants to organize his life around what's reliable and real. And so he organizes his life around money because that's all that's left. Um, and, you know, Mark Oppenheimer certainly doesn't want that kind of world. I don't want that kind of world. Um, and, and so, so I think that what we need, to, what I'm trying to get at is how do, how did it come to this? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I think it came to this because we've, in the post-war era, because of the fact that people made perverse things sacred, that therefore we have said the best way to prevent that from happening is to make nothing sacred. And then when all that shakes out 70 years down the line, we have young people who don't believe there's anything sacred in the world, so you might as well just get rich. Yeah, it's interesting that you you pointed out about how in the essay that one of the things that is not taken serious enough is 1989 – the collapse of the Iron Curtain and how, you know, now I think a study I just saw said 35% of millennials in this country don't really think it's a big deal to live in a liberal democracy. Right. It, it, that's interesting because I remember teaching undergrads at a Christian school a couple of years ago and I asked them what – I was trying to get them into like symbols in the Bible or something. Said, you know, what would it mean to see a, a bald eagle boxing a big bear with, you know, both boxing gloves? None of them knew what it meant. <laughs> yeah. And there you go. Symbols totally gone, you know, like, and, and it, it quickly. And so I think the, the sort of acceptance of totalitarianism and, and this kind of indifference to these two. Well, I don't think it's an acceptance of totalitarianism. I don't think it takes it seriously as a possibility. Oh, that might so, be. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So in other yeah. words, what happened is in the, during the Cold War, we had this disenchantment, weakening of things, but there was this counter pressure of the Cold War and the and nuclear conflict between Russia and the United States, there was something existential at stake. And we had to kind of steel ourselves, gather ourselves to offer resistance to the Soviet other. And when the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, that was the kind of last, that was the last thing that required us to kind of gin up the rhetoric of something being sacred. So our way of life, freedom, sacred versus the, versus the communist, um, the communist evil and that kind of good versus evil uh, uh, framework melts away. And after 1989, a young person sort of says, well, I mean, nothing's really at stake here. You know, liberal democracy, what's the big deal? Um, you know, so I don't think they can envision something emerging that would be um, that would be genuinely totalitarian. So in all of this consideration for the renewal of public life, Pope Francis, good, bad. Is he, <laughs> is he part of the disenchanting or is he yes. re-enchanting? He's a disenchanter. He's a disenchanter. Rusty, yeah. don't sugarcoat it. He is. Why, yeah, is he a dis why is he a disenchanter? It's generational. I don't think it's very difficult for a man of his generation not to be swept up into, into this um, uh, imperative of disenchantment. The Second Vatican Council in the 1960s, the Catholic Church, I think, um, certainly not the, the council in part, but mostly in the aftermath of the council, uh, the church was swept up into disenchantment as a kind of uh, therapy, of uh, a moral therapy, liberating the human person and preventing evil. Um, so you get this kind of mentality that desecration is the higher consecration. Uh, 
removing boundaries. Uh, the church is a field hospital, not a not a you know not a, a fortress. Uh, these kinds of but that's kind of not all bad, right? The church is. I mean, the the Jesus' last words in all the Gospels and the Book of Acts are "Go." You know, I mean, there's a sentness, right? That's at the heart of, of being the people of God. That's you've got to be a little field hospital, right? I mean, sure. I mean, it's not a either or, but he just doesn't seem to think that it's necessary to uh, to to. Uh, I think if I'm right, we live in an age of where the greatest threat is disillusion. In other words, we get swept, we get swallowed by this infinitely fluid world. He senses that in his critiques of global capitalism, which is a very powerful engine of, of disillusion and uh, um, uh, a kind of liquefaction of life. So he senses that. So he's obviously in some sense of like, whoa, uh, there are powers at work in the world that um, are going to are going to lead to a throwaway culture. Um, and treat people as disposable commodities. Um, so he's aware of that. I just don't think that theologically he's recognized how that's already infiltrated Christian's way of thinking about our own tradition, uh, that we have a, that we become a kind of fluid church for a fluid age. I think it's a mistake. I think we need to... That, Rusty, people. you could have a megachurch like that, Rusty. You could, I just picture you in jeans, like a, a, like a designer yeah, you know. black T-shirt... Yeah, yeah. And then we had a smoke machine at Rusty Reno presenting a fluid church for a fluid you, age. You got it. Liquid and, church. Uh, and I don't like, uh, I don't like that. I'm for, uh, I, if I was, uh, the Archbishop of New York, I would require every church to re- restore the altar rails. Uh, you know, I, and it just, we need to kind of create a strong, uh, a renewed sense that Christ comes and takes territory. Um, and, uh, he, his, you know, his word is enduring and everlasting, uh, unbending, uh, uh, not flexible. Um, now, we pastorally, as sinners, have to meet people where they are and bring them to the mountain of Zion. But uh, but there is a mountain. And it's it's in a place, right? And it has a kind of solidity and, and permanence to it. And I think that that needs to be accentuated in our ever-fluid, ever-more-dissolving age. But don't you think, though, I mean, if anything, Pope Francis has seemed to have an enchanting effect on people. I mean, people even outside the church look to him and see a spiritual figure that gives them, seems to give them hope and, and a sense of joy. I mean, is it, I mean, is there something enchanting about him? In oh, that absolutely. Regard? I mean, he, he, it's the Franciscan charism, which is that, uh, the Christians should seek to become an icon of Christ. Even though he's a Jesuit. Uh, I'll I, never forgive them for what they did to the Jansenists, by the way. <laughs> yeah, but Jesuits—they uh, have a—they have a their own spirituality is one of kind of being—they're the kind of commandos of the Catholic Church, the Green Berets, who are trained for special ops to be able to function in a creative, flexible way on the margins of the church, and which is fantastic. And oh, when, it, when it goes well, it really, really goes well. They can do powerful good. Uh, for it's the fantastic. Gods. And when they do well, they do really, really well. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it's fantastic. But, but, the, but, but Christianity is not, I mean, the, the, the people of God are not just the special ops forces out in the jungle. Uh, there's a lot of extraordinary day-to-day work of, um, of, of just being the Christian church. And, uh, and I think that that, that that needs to be 
we need to think about how we can make our churches beacons of uh, of a kind of sacred permanence in people's lives. Um, I think that's really what that what we need. I don't think the Holy Father um, fully grasps that. If it was me, I'd make the language as archaic as possible. I would make the get as much incense and as many candles as possible, and you know have the architecture as out of the ordinary as you know out of the make it as unmodern as possible so that when you're in church you feel like you're not in this world that is dissolving you're someplace uh, outside of time and space i wonder that like what about a place like i mean you live in new york city and what somebody like tim keller who's had remarkable success right and some of that has just been the proclamation i mean i've listened to a lot of his sermons and i think week to week is one of the best He's just great ex- exegete of scripture. He's great with cultural analysis. He's great with sort of old school Jonathan Edwards, Martin Luther religious affections. I mean, wh- what about, do you think the church's proclamation? I mean, the average, say, let's say the average priest in the New York City archdiocese, how much training do you think they have homiletically and theologically so that they can be actual missiologists in the pulpit and actually bridge the gap between worlds that people live in and speak right. the gospel into that. Right. I think this is a, a good example of between Protestant and Catholic. Catholic, uh, the kind of gospel comes at you most powerfully in the liturgy, in in the Eucharist, right? So that doing that in the right way to make that gospel come to people in a pretty powerful way is what I think most priests who are good um, – that's where they really excel, and the pulpit not so much. Uh, but, doesn't, does, but doesn't that require a catechized people that have a sacramental piety that get formation other places? I, I mean, I, no, I have I'm a lot of friends who are priests. I, I like you know, they, most of their parishioners. I mean, the nominalism that that I think the like a weak catechetical structure. Yeah, creates. no, I agree with you. I agree with you. But I think uh, Keller's a good example, though, of that. He's he's a Parmenidean with respect to the Word of God. Right. The scriptures say what they say. And he doesn't. Uh, part of his power as a preacher is that he brings he's able to make the sort of permanent truth of the word of God available to people. Uh, he's not one of these preachers who wants to make it relevant. You know what I'm saying? Uh, in the bad sense of translating it into uh, the kind of easy idioms of our time. And the success of his ministry is a very powerful example of that. People are hungry for for a, a truth that doesn't bend to them. Uh, so, and as a Protestant, he, he he doesn't see the the liturgical experience as being. It, it revolves around the proclamation of the Word of God, whereas for Catholics, the proclamation revolves around the sacrifice of the Mass. Very yeah. different. And so, I as a Catholic, I think we got to. If a Protestant, I would say. You, get, you don't get the proclamation right, everything goes down the tubes. I would say as a Catholic, you don't get the sacrifice of the Mass right, the, the, liturgical, the, the liturgical elements right. If it doesn't have that strong, transcendent, upward push, uh, then, then it, uh, it goes down the tubes. Hmm. Who, who, do you, um, who, who do you think that people should be reading uh, like theologically uh, or, or outside of theology? I, just, I mean, as you're thinking about the weak and the strong, the problem it, it poses, and kind of a uh, renewed approach to public life, as you're saying, based in faith and family, you know, and, and a more Parmenidean kind of spirit. Right. What, what, what are the leading lights for you? What's been on your shelf lately that's been helpful? Well, I think everyone needs to read Charles Murray's book, Coming Apart. Uh, 
um, because it details how bad things have gotten in our society. Um, and I think a lot of us, a lot of us live, uh, on the side of the successful side of the divide as opposed to the dysfunctional side of the divide. And we need to reckon with that. Sad thing is he doesn't give any help about how to move forward. He makes some suggestions, but there, it doesn't, I don't think, recognize that this is a spiritual crisis as much as it is an economic crisis. Uh, so how to deal with the spiritual crisis? Now, that's a great question. You know, who have I been reading? You know, it's funny, you know, the people that come to mind are usually the diagnosticians of our predicament rather than the prophets of our deliverance. <laughs> and uh, uh, and that could be the kind of moment, just like this young guy who wrote me, we started our conversation, I want to live to see the end of the 20th century. We all, we're all feeling as though we're coming to uh, dead ends of many sorts. And part of our unease is the lack of clear guidance about where to go now. We know, you know, we have a strong feeling. We just can't keep doing what we've been taught to do. Um, and, and we gotta, and something's gonna give politically, uh, culturally. The universities are a mess. Um, you know, uh, our political culture is increasingly dysfunctional. Uh, the rise of the nuns, no religious affiliation that American society has made. Our own Christian faith has become kind of politically very fraught. And we're, we're worried about that. I think rightly so. So all kinds of ways in which we, we sense that we're up against some serious challenges. Um, and I, I really, I guess, subscribe to first things. Absolutely. That's always in a, uh, the first step. But and also I, listen to the podcast. You guys have a new podcast that came out this year, right? You started doing. Yep. And it's excellent. That. It is excellent. One of the books that I went back to was, uh, Ratzinger's book on the future of Christianity that he did in 1970 or 71. And uh, it's, a, it's a small book and it's worth looking at. Um, he had a very, he was a very far seeing about uh, the need for the church to be more clearer about its mission, more intentional in its, in its interior life and honest about the fact that we no longer live in Christendom. Yeah. Uh, and I think, I think that that's, uh, that's worth revisiting, but Wow. His books on you Jesus asked me too. a hard question. That's a very hard question. His books on Jesus, those three volumes too. I, I, that's mm. some, they're some of the best things I've read in the Gospels. I mean, well, what's on my what's on my bedside shelf? A bedside table is uh, George Orwell's essays. I've been rereading re some of his classic essays. Uh, that was another time of disorientation, mm -hmm. I think, because he's at the beginning of that post-war era, and it's useful to kind of read through what he has to uh, say and think about. But people who are contemporary. Have you ever read Tom Tomas Halik? Uh, no. He's um, this guy I've been reading a lot lately. I found him very helpful. He said uh, he became a priest behind the Iron Curtain um, in the Czech Republic and mm. developed a relationship with John Paul. He tells this story where in 1989 he actually got to meet John Paul and and just as they're eating dinner, the 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 wall is you know it's all happening. And he goes, this is going to be over in weeks. He's, and he's like, I said, Holy Father, they don't recognize your infallibility over there. But he was right. <laughs> but, uh, but he wrote, he wrote, um, and, he, and it became, you know, now he, I think he, um, he, Easter, this last Easter, he baptized 32 adults. Um, it's really, he's got a vibrant ministry at the university. But he wrote this book called Patience with God. And he said that, um, faith, uh, uh, is patience, um, uh, with others 
um, hope is patience, or no, faith is patience with God. Hope, uh, ho- love is pa- is patience with others, and hope is patience with yourself. Mm. And uh, nice. he he writes very. I mean, he's just a really gifted. But he talks about impatience with God, how he sees atheism and fundamentalism as two forms of impatient faith mm. that can't tolerate minist- uh, mystery and. But he's really interesting because he's also was a psychoanalyst. Like he he was sort of an underground priest and vocationally was a psychoanalyst. Um, so he's just a really interesting kind of figure. You might see him as a little disenchanting because he does like modern philosophy, but <laughs> <laughs> he does like things post Aquinas. So, um, but very but, gifted. Uh, Pierre Minette, uh, I think um, his that long interview that was recently translated and published in English, I think, is under the title "Thinking Politically." He's got a real bead on the fact that we've become uh, our political cultures have become um, weakened, to use my language, to the point where we we're, we're struggling to recover some sense of political agency. And he's he's very good uh, on that. Um, and who who am I reading in theology lately? Uh, Father Thomas Joseph White has a new book coming out on introduction to Catholicism, which I think grapples with a lot of the kind of questions that uh, we're facing at the present. Do you, have you, do you know any of his work? No, I don't. The Dominican, teaches at the Dominican House of Studies in Washington. Uh, you know, he's got a big book on Christology, the Incarnate Lord. Uh, he wrote a commentary on the book of Exodus for the series that I do, um, the Brazos Theological Commentary in the Bible series, which is really good. It is a great, I, it is, I, it is, you've, there's some great commentaries in this. Yeah, they're not all fantastic, but, um, we have some good ones in there. But there are lots and, of them that are fantastic. I mean, really, they're, 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 they're a wonderful series. They're, Amazing. Some of them are so good. Sad. Very sad. <laughs> <laughs> sad. I mean, just some of them are a disgrace. <laughs> it's a disgrace. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I Peter Lightheart's commentary uh, I like in Kings. And yours in Genesis is great. Thanks. I really uh, found it helpful. And uh, I thought Father uh, now Bishop Robert Barron's commentary on Second Samuel. It's just beautifully written. And it really made me recognize how Second Samuel is such an important pivot in Scripture. Uh, from Israel, if you will, as a political project to Israel as a spiritual project is what, kind of the way I think as a, how should we put it? Israel as a political project to Israel as an eschatological, yeah. mess- messianic project. I had never seen it quite so clearly and, and he brings it out, uh, beautifully. Um, so I really, I really recommend that. And Phil Carey has a very nice commentary in the book of Jonah. Yeah. Uh, and then Joe Mangina, I think, the book of Revelation. Yeah, he, Revelation. Yeah. Revelation is very. I mean, there's some books of the Bible that just kind of right. They're so uh, they're so explosive that they just overwhelm you. I mean, writing a commentary on the Gospel of John. Well, all the Johannine literature is very explosive, and Joe did a really great job of doing justice to the richness without being overwhelmed by it. It's interesting. I just interviewed Rob Bell, and he wrote a new book about the Bible. And I I hadn't read a lot of Rob Bell's stuff before because. I didn't grow up really in the church and, you know, it, I, I especially didn't grow up conservative. And so he was coming up with answers to problems I didn't like have. But his book on the Bible is mostly kind of, they're almost like little sermon chapters. And the language is so like palpable. And, and I just think like, he talks about the Bible in very direct ways. And, and it's just, you know, it's interesting that it, that is part of the interesting thing too. You talk about, you know, the strong gods and disenchantment. Like our capacity as Protestants or Catholics. To find, you know, like what Bart called the strange new world of the Bible? The Bible is always a, a, a force for re-enchantment uh, in the sense that, as you, as you rightly, Bart's got that beautiful uh, 
a beautiful image of the Bible as being the kind of absorbing us. Um, and, and that's a kind of entering into God's world, so to speak. Uh, it draws us, it, it, it scripturalizes our imaginations and our lives ultimately through our imaginations. And that's, that's the most, I mean, that's, that's the kind of reenchantment. Like I say, there are different levels of reenchantment. You know, I think we need to reenchant family, right? So that people see family as a, as a gift. Um, you know, it's really quite striking here in New York how many people uh, don't have children. Yeah. And, um, and I mean, not that there aren't always, there's always been reasons for people not to have children. And so it's not the case that everyone has to have a child, but there's something about our culture now that, that, um, it's finding it more and more difficult to see family and children as blessings, um, uh, to be, to be cherished and, and, and to be sought. Uh, and then obviously faith, uh, uh, as I said, faith, family, and, uh, and this kind of civic world. I think it's a good thing that people are proud of where they're from uh, and feel a sense of belonging and loyalty. We are what we love, and the strength of our loves is uh, is really what gives meaning to our lives. Now, how do you do that without the tribal piece? I mean, how do you get a properly sort of a love of the of where of place that also has a sort of Augustinian pilgrimage to it, like where where it's in creative tension? No, I, I, I'm with you, and I think that part of wisdom pastoral wisdom is to recognize what the greatest threat is. We're always, you know, and I think the greatest threat of our time is that we're rootless, mm -hmm. not that we're overly clannish. Uh, and, and it's, it requires discernment. I mean, in some, I, mean, I can imagine pastoring in some contexts where the clannishness is the greatest problem. And then one needs to remind people that they're on pilgrimage. But I think in the kind of super, Hyper fluid American twenty what seventeen society. Our biggest problem is rootlessness, and you got to say, hey, you know, uh, uh, God, God gives Israel a land, uh, right? The promise to Abraham, place, prosperity, uh, you know, and and progeny. Mm. Uh, he has a place. He, he has a future in, in in progeny. He has a place. And, and he has blessings. He has a uh, uh, fullness of life, life abundant. Mm. Rusty, I, I was, as I was studying, without studying, but following the French election, I didn't realize that Le Pen's party, I mean, she has some of the Trump kind of rhetoric around walls and, and, and anti sort of international stuff. But a lot of their economic policy is more like Bernie Sanders. I mean, it's a very, so when the people call it far right, it's, I think it's, it's kind of confusing. Why is it though? And you know, the Republican Party does seem like it's become like a coalition government sort of within it thing. But why can't Republicans come up with better rhetoric than if we get more tax cuts, everything's going to be okay? If I could answer that question, I could solve a lot of political problems, my friend. But I agree with you. I've been to many meetings and I have to bang the table and say, you, you know, Tax cuts do not win elections. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it's not even clear that they make the economy grow either, for that matter. I mean, no one really knows what's, what works and what doesn't. Um, I'm, I'm in favor of cutting the corporate tax rate. I think there are good reasons to want to do that. Uh, maybe it'll help uh, stimulate the economy. Um, but, but the, you know, ultimately... But if you, but if you, cut, the, to, if you cut the rate, though, and get rid of the loopholes, won't it raise? Because, gee... Because General Electric paid no taxes. They got money back. So if you drop the rate but cut out the loopholes, you right. drastically raise corporate taxes. The thing to recognize is that uh, our social contract has been revised over the last generation in ways that we have not examined. 
Uh, and when, when I was a kid, you know, you play by the rules, you know, you, you have a good work ethic, eh, things work out. Yeah. You know, you don't have to, you don't have to be, go and get a graduate degree. Uh, that's just not true anymore. And, and we have to face up to the fact that our social contract has changed and we need to ask ourselves, are we happy with the one we have now? I'm not happy with it. Yeah, and we build oh, a middle yeah, class, right? Most cultures don't successfully build middle classes. Like, I mean, a no. thriving middle class. Like, uh, that's right. amazing. Like, if, if you're not encouraging it, you're losing it, is yeah. my view. Yeah. I think a natural condition of the, of most societies is a superordinate oligarchy and, um, you know, uh, countless peons. Uh, and so we need to, I think we need to renew, uh, the middle class in America. I think, uh, democracies require this kind of large, amorphous middle class that um, that provides stability in the system. And one reason why our political systems become more polarized is because the middle class, the ballast in the system, has been diminished. The middle class is eroded. And it's important to realize it's eroded up as well as down. Yeah, and yeah. In other words, you know, uh, the guys I went to college with, some of them become very wealthy, never imagined that it was possible to get, you know, they wanted to be doctors and dentists like their parents uh, were as professionals. Um, but the reward, the rewards in the globalized economy have become much, much greater. And also the peril of, of, uh, um, you know, global competition for labor has made, made, uh, people on the bottom half of society much more vulnerable. But it's funny because everybody feels vulnerable. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you meet very talented young college students. I meet them and talk to them and they're so worried about their future. And you think, well, hey, man, you, you're on the winning side of the global project. Why are you so worried? But they feel very acutely the competitive atmosphere and the loss of stability within the system. Yeah, it's interesting. One of the things Rob Bell said was that, you know, he sees three main storylines in the Bible. Like there's a forgiveness of sins, cleansing, expert healing one. There's a liberation one. You know, you're delivered for something that yeah. that keeps you down and, and, and diminishes your, your human life. And then he said there's an exile and return home. Right. And to me, it seems like we need to get better with that one because it feels like Everyone in America feels like an exile. If you're an NRA person, the liberals are taking all our guns. If you're a gun, uh, uh, you want gun uh, restrictions, uh, the NRA runs the country. If you're a liberal, it's a right-wing takeover. If you're conservative, Barack Obama was a socialist. It's Everybody feels like they're displaced and beleaguered. No, I agree with you completely, and I had not thought about the exile motif, but I, I've made a similar observation that everybody feels afflicted. Everybody feels like a victim. And, and your point, that's a great way of thinking about it. Everyone feels like they're in exile. Uh, that's a sign that the, the era, that what I call the post-war era, is ending. Yeah. Because the job of a social consensus is to give people a sense of being a, a, a home, to give them a sense of home, of belonging. Hey, I know what the social consensus is. I'm part of it, right? That's what that's what a functional social consensus does. It, it never includes everybody. It always has. Um, it always fails. It's always riven with injustice. We know that in the fallen world in which we live, uh, we'll never find just the right formula. But our social consensus has become so weakened that no one feels like they're. No one feels like they belong. Yeah, it's interesting because I voted for Bernie Sanders in the primary and voted for Hillary Clinton. Uh, and I generally vote left of center. And as you and I talk, I, I, I feel like we agree on a lot more than we disagree on. And it's, and it's kind of, it's pretty easy to find a shared 
I bet you if we had Mark Oppenheimer sitting here talking with us, he would, it would, it would be no, similar. No, he's a professional disagreement. Yeah. <laughs> he's, well, he was a debater and he did write a book about his debate of oh, things. Like, no, but you know, I mean, he, and I saw him last night with uh, it. But the, the disagreements comes about how to move forward. See, I think. Right, that, right. I think that, um, you have to renew. I, I'm in favor of renewing the national, the, the civic covenant. Right. And whenever I talk that way, my liberal friends say, well, okay, well, who's covenant? Yeah. And, then we're, and yeah. then we're back to, Hey, we can't have a civic covenant because somebody's going to be on the periphery and somebody's going to be at the center. It's interesting. That's the nature of, right? <laughs> yeah. And Mark said some of this stuff last night. He's like, look, conservative, you guys, I'm with you on a whole bunch of stuff. And he said that he had this great observation that liberals, uh, conservatives, um, want converts. Liberals go after heretics. And so there's always a kind of, you know, somebody pushed the line or somebody, so this philosophy professor that makes comparisons to transgender and trans, which just an, an analytical thing. I mean, it's not a, oh, and then you're out. You're out of the orthodoxy. Whereas conservatives are kind of like converts. So you, you, they don't push people out of the tent as much. Like they kind of, um, but that's interesting. I mean, you're, I think that is part of. So we're very, that's the disenchantment, right? We disenchanted our covenants because we were aware that they excluded people. And they were sources of injustice. Uh, and that was not a wrong intuition. But it's my conviction we, that has gone too far and that people cannot live without covenants, without covenantal belonging. And we have to experiment with their renewal, even if we know that, hey, uh, you know, we're going to get this one wrong, just like we got the last one wrong. But people who can't live, no man is an island. People can't live yeah. swimming alone in the ocean. They need yeah. an island. Yeah. Need some archipelago you know, <laughs> that they can that they can land on, and if it's not us doing it, it it's going to be the bad guys who follow later. Uh, yeah, who with 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 the the old myths that are that are uh, destructive ones that are clannish in the bad way, tribal, and uh, rely on violence as a way of unifying people. This is like The Handmaid's Tale. I mean, it's it's creepy. You know, this new series on. It's on Hulu, and you know the novel was about this. I know the Atwood novel. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, it's incredibly well done. I mean, it's a great serial drama. But it is. I mean, it is like basically you have this sort of tribal strongman. You know, kind of. I mean, it's thinly Christian on its surface, but it's not. It's it's just a totalitarian kind of out of fear. You know, at, to create a, a new covenant, a new, to create new social ligaments, and like you're saying, force them together uh, rather yeah. than have a shared covenantal. Right. So I, I, I think we need to think about that. I mean, the Atwood, uh, novel turns on kind of renewed patriarchy. Um, yeah. And this, yeah. So that's what this happens here. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so let's, let's look at that. It just seems to me that transgender, the, the notion we're, we're kind of trying, we're, we're at the point now where our commitment to, there's no difference between men and women has reached a, such an extreme pitch that the transgender project seems plausible to people. I, I think unless we restore some viable language about the male-female difference, uh, we're, we're heading into real problems. Uh, we need to be able, we need to have the, we need to talk about what, as I've said, if you want to be a genuine revolutionary in 2017, stand up and say, men and women are different. And, <laughs> and follow it up and say, that has moral meaning. And yeah, people are going to be like, "Oh my God!" Because that just opens up the door to all the stuff that 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 uh, of the past to flood back in. Um, but dude, if you could, if you press that, unless, if, unless we actually engage in a kind of discussion about this, it's going to flood back. But if you press that too far, what if we don't get like David Bowie or Prince or Annie Lennox? I mean, there's there's always give and takes, you know. <laughs> 
there, but there were these people existed before the um, the last fifty years. I mean, Oscar Wilde. Uh, I mean, it was Wilde's a funny character because he he intuitively recognized that you can't have eccentricity if you don't have norms. Uh, and what we get in a society where there are no differences is not individuality, but instead people who are immediately suborned by mass culture. So everybody's an individual in Brooklyn in exactly the same way. <laughs> uh, you know, right? Yeah, yeah. We, we do not actually craft our own lives. Instead, we become blank slates on which uh, um, Madison Avenue writes its marketing messages, uh, where Hollywood writes its... Uh, uh, you know, it's it's various fantasies. They are fantastic um, messages. And Amazing. I, I, and I think that uh, um, part of restoring these Parmenidean elements of solidity is actually the key to renewing people's freedom. So they have a place to stand. Because yeah. if you don't have a place to stand, you can't say no. If you can't say no, you're not free. Yeah. Anyway, freedom is two things, right? Like gospel freedom is not just freedom from, but freedom for. Like freedom from. But even freedom from. You're not free from the principalities and powers, uh, unless you're, unless you're free for, yeah, right. Yeah. But the principalities and powers just sweep people along. We see this, I mean, it's true for all of us. We're all in some way in the thrall of the principalities and powers, uh, uh, even if we're people of faith, cause we live, you know, uh, as fallen, as fallen human beings. But, uh, but for those who have no solid place to stand, they're just completely, I, I say that we're ruled by three hearth gods, health, wealth, and pleasure. Hmm. You know, and so in the morning you go to the gym, you serve the health god. Then you spend 12 hours at work in your uh, high-pressure professional job serving the, the wealth god. And then you go out for, uh, you know, um, locally sourced food and fine wine and you serve the pleasure god. And then you do it all again the next morning, the next day. Hmm. Uh, and that's not freedom. Freedom is not being able to choose between one brand of uh, wine and, you know, one vintage of wine and another. Uh so I, I think I think the, even the freedom from for all of our talk about freedom in our society, uh, are, we, there's, there's far less freedom from than there was in my grandparents' generation. <laughs> Rusty, this is was fascinating conversation, and uh, let's do it again. Uh, okay, great. And Good. please, everybody, subscribe to First Things early and often. Early and often, and uh, yeah, to sign a superior intelligence to read First Things magazine. Absolutely. All right. Thanks a lot for having me on here. Podcast. Thank you for doing it. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds, go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And do check out First Things, Rusty's journal. It's a great read, always interesting, thoughtful, sometimes provocative. I highly recommend checking it out, even subscribing. Thanks so much again for listening. And until next time, fare thee well.